our scripture reading this afternoon is from the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. And this is the last day um, that Paul is in Lystra because of the persecution. And I'll read from the very moment where Paul is stoned and then as he moves on. So verse 19 of chapter 14. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as a disciple stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Italia, and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, And there they abode long time with the disciples. Thus far, may God bless the reading of His Word. And we sing together. Dear congregation, I invite you again to open God's Word in Acts chapter 14. And we are, as you have seen, um, at the very last phase of this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. They arrived at the last city as far as they would go, Derby, and they decided um, either through God's direct guidance or through providence, the Lord certainly making clear that they were now to retrace their steps, returning to Lystra, the very last city in which Paul was stoned, and then to Iconium, where they had been driven out because of those who wanted to stone them, and then they went to Antioch and Perga, The only added city in this itinerary is the city of Italia, another city in the coast, where we're simply told that from there they sailed back to their home church in in Antioch of Syria. And so these are missionaries who are on their way home to furlough, as they would say nowadays. They they determined that the time to reach new places um, had, had been sufficient, and they decided to retrace their steps, to, to return, to revisit um, every newly planted church. And they do that. This, this will be the bulk of our message today as we, we see um, this one phrase, that they went confirming the souls of the disciples. 
And we will see how that came about, this, this confirming the souls, which means to strengthen the souls of the new believers. And we'll consider this portion um, under these two points, the serving sacrificially, because this is obviously what we see here. Paul and Barnabas are, are a model of sacrificial serving. And then secondly, the strengthening of the souls. And we'll see that there are, in essence, five, five different ways in the text by which they went about strengthening the souls of the disciples. And, of course, this would mean that for your soul to be strengthened, these would be the five biblical ways that you would be strengthened, that you would be confirmed um, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. But first of all, the serving sacrificially. And I put it this way because certainly these are servants. Paul and Barnabas aren't here for their own personal interests. They're, they're not traveling. They're not sightseeing. There's a place for, for that kind of leisure, you could say, for, for families. But when you are serving the Lord as a missionary, like Paul and Barnabas were, um, of course they're being blessed. Of course they're being personally edified. But what they're doing is serving. And what, what, what catches my attention from the very beginning is this, that as they arrived in Derby, which was, was the city that they went to, in a sense, to run away from Lystra, there in Derby we read that they preached the gospel to that city and taught many. Then they returned again to Lystra, and then Iconium and Antioch. And the first thing that would be in our minds having been stoned in one city perhaps would be to never ever return to that place that that's in a sense a natural instinct it's it's self-preservation there's even an element of wisdom there um if you knew that they were there ready to stone you again it's probably wise not to go there the lord jesus said that if you know they're going to persecute you in one city flee to the next This is what Paul had been doing. But yes, persecution caught up to him in in Lystra. He was stoned. But now after some time, he he judges that there is a relative safety. So he goes back. But can you imagine how hard that would be to to the human um, frame to go back to the place where you were stoned, where you were left as dead, and Paul and Barnabas goes there, and, and, and they arrive there. They meet the believers, and they confirm the disciples there. They exhort them to continue in the faith. And then, then they go to Iconium. And, and if you'll remember, Lyconian, um, that's the city where they fled to Lystra and Derby. And in verse 5 of chapter 14, it says, And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. So Iconium was not a city in which they were stoned, but a city in which they almost were stoned, where they were used despitefully. They were accused there. They were being pursued there. There were preparations for executing them there. That's the second city they go back to. And, and, and again, imagine yourself with those plans. Where are you going? I'm going back to Iconium. Well, didn't you say that there they were pre- prepared to use you despitefully and to stone you? Aren't you out of your mind to go back to that city? 
And you would say, if you were with Paul, you would hear Paul saying, well, I need to confirm the souls. I need to exhort them to continue in faith. I need to tell them that, yes, there will be tribulation. They've seen it happen. They need to be encouraged to know that's part of the Christian life. I need to go there. I need to pray with them. I need to um, ordain elders there. And then they went to the city before Iconium and There too, there was persecution. If you go to chapter 13, verse 50, we read, But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So they're going back to the very cities where they had to leave for the sake of their lives. And there's no other word than to say that this is sacrificial service. This is a labor of love. And and here I'm using the word agape love, which is sacrificial love. And beloved, this, this teaches us, us as believers, this is what it means to be a believer. I am not here to serve myself primarily. I am here to serve my brother and sister in Christ primarily. And even at the expense of my own life. That is how a believer thinks that is how we make decisions. Um, how, how would you like this to be done in the church? Okay, how, how would this affect so-and-so and brother and sister so-and-so and, and that family so-and-so? I'm thinking of them. I'm thinking of those, not me. I'm thinking of other people. That's how believers think. Agape love. Sacrificial love. This is what Paul and Barnabas are exemplifying before us. Maybe they heard from some people who meant well and tried to tell them, do not go back to those places. But they knew they had to. They had to confirm the disciples and had to exhort them to continue in the faith. Everything that follows, these believers had to hear it. And Paul sacrificially went by, went back. Um, let me give you an example, another example Um, extra-biblical from a man who was not in the days of the Bible, but very well known for his sacrificial service. It was that young man in the 1700s, David Brainerd. Um, He was a missionary to the Mohawk Indians. And he should be of an interest to many of our young people because he was in this very area. First, he went to Stockbridge in Massachusetts. He was only 23 years old. It was the mid-1700s. After a year there, he went to the Indians along the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. And then he went to the tribes of the Cross Wigsung. And in 1747, a very short ministry, he contracted tuberculosis at the beginning of the year. And after the end of summer, he was dead. He was 29 years old. He died in the house of Jonathan Edwards because he had a relationship with Jonathan Edwards' daughter. He was planning to marry her. He was going to be Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. But the Lord took him. And after taking care of him and having read his diaries, Jonathan Edwards was so impressed, he published them after David Brainerd died. And that set of, of diaries became an influencing force in the lives of many missionaries, even to this day. And some of the most notable missionaries who read these diaries and who were ready to also offer their lives in sacrificial, loving, 
and serving ways were um, among some, among many, was William Carey as he went to India, um, Henry Martin who went to Persia, and also you may have heard of Jim Elliot who died as a martyr in Ecuador. Elizabeth Elliot was his his wife. This is just a small sample of the zeal of this young man. I'm going to read a little portion from his diary. He said, I could have no freedom in the thought of any other circumstance or business in life. This is as he ministered to the Indians in the, in the woods and so far away from any um, kind of modern facility. All my desire was the conversion of the heathen and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself with hopes of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintance, and enjoying worldly comforts. He was so resigned. He he knew it would be even silly to think that soon he would be in a more comfortable place. But he was fine. He was content. Elsewhere he wrote, The whole world appears to me like a huge vacuum, a vast empty space where nothing desirable or at least satisfactory can possibly be derived, and I long daily to die more and more to it, to to the world. Even though I obtain not that comfort from spiritual things which I earnestly desire. The discontentment of his heart was that he didn't feel as close to the Lord as he wished he would. And as you read through his diary, you'll you'll find many places where he's complaining that he feels that the Lord is far. He feels that his soul is cold. And he's 20 minutes into prayer and it's still in that state. There are times he goes to sleep and that's where it ends. And other times, after some 20 minutes of prayer, he does speak of the warmth that he feels in his heart and the closeness of the Lord and how he would never want to miss that moment for anything else. And during those years that he ministered to the Indians, there was said to be even a revival where the Lord did save many of them. And so... This is an example of someone who, who really learned the example of Paul and Barnabas, this, this sacrificial um, serving. So, so there is service, there is love, as we mentioned. And thirdly, I could say there is commitment. Um, this is looking at, at their service to the very end. Um, as they go back to those cities where, where our natural frames would make it very hard to go back to, but they do. Then they arrive at the city where they began. And we, we, we have this very simple um, reality. They were sent by the church in Antioch. After they finished their ministry, they go back to the church in Antioch. And, and beloved, this is where we derive these principles, even of, of commitment to, to local bodies of, of church. Um, this is where we see it happening. Paul doesn't arrive in Antioch, just gives maybe a few words and go all, uh, somewhere else as if he has no binding commitment to Antioch. No, that's where he returns to, and that's where he stays and continues to minister because that was his local congregation. You could say that for this moment in life, Paul was a member of that Antioch church in Syria, and he feels a commitment to those brothers. He, the churches are all connected. The church in Jerusalem and Samaria and Caesarea and Antioch. Next chapter, there will be a problem. And the the church in Antioch feels they should send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to go talk to the, the apostles and get counsel from them. You can see that they're all connected. 
And, and this is what we seek to emulate in, in, in our church life. This is why, um, as, as congregations, we, we have some HRC churches and we try to be connected because we realize that we need multitude of counsel. Um, it's, it's impossible, in a sense, to be connected with every single denomination. But in a sense, congregations that are very um, alike in doctrine, they, they do try as best as they can to be connected. In, in our group of churches that are Presbyterian or Reformed, you may have heard of NAPARC, which is a national association of Presbyterian and Reformed churches. And the Free Reformed are part of that. The PCA is part of that. The OPC, the URC. And they meet once or so a year. They meet um, in general, and then they have meetings regarding the ministries that they do, the outreaches. And this is in the heart of believers because of exactly what you read here in the pages of Scripture. Paul and Barnabas felt a responsibility to Antioch, and that was, in a sense, their main commitment. There will be an issue there. They go to Jerusalem to talk to a plurality of, of counsel. And, of course, because the, the, the apostles were there. So there's, of course, that wisdom to go to the apostles who, who were taught by the Lord Jesus Christ to help solve an issue. And so, beloved, this is where we learn about the importance of being a member in a church, of being committed to a church. Um, And not only that, if you are committed to a church, if you are the member of the church, to go to that church and to be present and to be part of the life of the congregation. And, And if you are, in a sense, to be excused, it would be, in a sense, to go and serve like Paul and Barnabas and then with this heart of coming back and ministering and sharing um, what happened perhaps in a, in a mission trip or in some other endeavor where you were able to serve the Lord. And so this is our first point, the serving sacrificially. And Paul and Barnabas are used of the Lord as, as models to us of love, service, and commitment. And now let's look at our second point, strengthening souls. And I use the word strengthening because that's what confirming the souls mean. There are places in the King James where that's how it's translated. Acts 18.23 is a place where we read, And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. In Acts 15.32, it goes back to confirmed. And Judas and Silas, being prophets, also themselves exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. This was something that Paul and other missionaries did. As if they arrived somewhere for the first time, they preached the gospel. And they would explain who Jesus is and lead people to Christ. If he would continue there... He would be discipling them in the ways of Christ. And it's, it's like this confirming is like a third degree. When someone is somewhat discipled where he can be now a believer on his own. He's still not supposed to be a believer on his own. He's supposed to be strengthened. And really, when you think of that degree, it, it's a never-ending degree. Um, Maybe you are discipled for two or three years and you have a certain level of maturity where you can start evangelizing, discipling others. But the strengthening, being confirmed, none of us should ever feel that we graduate from that. 
And, and this, in essence, is what we're doing. Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and at your homes, reading your Bibles, and as your parents read your Bibles to you, young people, children, you, they are strengthening you. They are confirming you um, as disciples, confirming your souls. And like I said, there, there are five ingredients um, in the text as to how souls are strengthened. If I were to ask, well, how are how do they do this? How do they confirm the souls of the disciples? It's not that the next phrase, exhorting them to continue, is like another thing. They confirm the souls, exhorting them to continue. And so that's the first thing. Exhortation unto Faithfulness. Look, exhorting them to continue in the faith. We can find this word to summarize this. Um, faithfulness. They, they told these disciples who had come to Christ that they needed to be faithful. They needed to continue in the faith. That's how you strengthen someone. By telling them to continue. By telling them to be faithful. And, and note, notice how wonderful Paul and Barnabas are wonderful examples to this because this is what they're doing. They, they are so faithful. They're, they're back into cities where there is danger and they're telling them to be faithful. Isn't this a powerful example? Nobody could say, well, Paul, Barnabas, it's easy for you to say that. Um, you don't know what these sufferings are. No, he did. He had the marks of those stones probably on him. Uh, maybe he still has bruises as he comes back. And he's teaching them to be faithful while he is faithful, while he continues um, in the faith. I, I want to read a portion in Hebrews because as we, as we find, there, there are many places in God's Word in the letters of Paul. And here very, very precisely in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12, many portions of the epistles... That's what the pastor's doing. He's, he's um, strengthening us. He's confirming our souls by exhorting us to be faithful. Look at Hebrews 3. I want to read verses 12 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. There, there are many verses, but you'll see a beautiful way where God inspired the author of Hebrews to, to encourage faithfulness and even showing the dangers if we are not faithful, if we don't continue in the faith. So verse 12 of Hebrews 3, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. See, if there's an evil heart of unbelief, you're not continuing in the faith. And departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The year he's... He's saying that each and every one of us are to be like Paul and Barnabas, exhorting one another to continue daily. This is the continuing in the faith. There's the danger of hardening our hearts. Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That's from the psalm. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? 
So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into the rest, his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. This is not an exhortation of, of the danger of losing salvation, but it is the exhortation for us to continue in the faith, lest peradventure, if you get distracted by this world and you fall away, then it may be noticed that you've never been a believer after all. And this is exactly what happened to those people who were in the wilderness. And you notice what it was? It was unbelief. He repeats that several times. Everybody in the, who died in the wilderness, in, in not, some may have died because of their age and all, but in, in all of those disciplines, those who, in a sense, did not enter the rest, it was because of unbelief. That means that they did not continue in the faith. And this is precisely what Paul is saying, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And you can easily understand how that will confirm and strengthen your soul. It's faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus. The simple thing is this. You, you are saved by faith. You live the Christian life by faith. So that's number one. Number two would be what continues. He says, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. They went around warning people of the reality of tribulation. And we could call this perseverance. He was teaching them faithfulness. He was teaching them perseverance. Um, the reality that the Christian walk will have its challenges and will have its dangers. When, when we evangelize, we're supposed to be realistic. It's, you've heard me say this before. It's, it's, there's an element of irony here because this is not how the world does it. When the world tries to encourage into something and even sell a product, all they do is say the good things. They never dare say anything negative. But when we offer the gospel, we are to say the positive things and we are to say the glorious things. And yes, that there is heaven and yes, forgiveness of sins. But we are to be true and realistic. And we are to say that you must count the cost, that you must carry the cross, that you will have persecution and tribulation. Like, like Paul is saying, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And, and, and when the world hears that, they say, well, why would I ever want to go in? And we don't fear about that because the true believers will go in. This, this will never scare away a true believer. Because a true believer has a spirit, the spirit will give you strength and will give you courage to be like Paul and go back to Elystra. We can't understand that in the way of the world, but God gives us a heart to do that because it's His work in us, not our own. The Lord Jesus made that very clear. He once told His disciples in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So basically he's saying, if, if you do not deny yourself, you cannot follow me. If you do not take up your cross, you cannot come after me. If you're not ready to die, if you're not ready to this sacrificial life, if you're too scared of what comes ahead, if, if you think you're more important than the ministry and my name and my glory, then you cannot follow me. That's what Jesus was meaning. Now, um, 
the Lord Jesus did proclaim, and we should proclaim, the many positive things, the, the many promises that are in the gospel, like Matthew eleven twenty eight, where the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the gospel has these two things. See, he says, come and I will give you rest. But I will tell you the truth that you must carry the cross, that you must count the cost. There will be tribulation. But I will be with you. I will protect you. Come to me. It will be okay. There are these two sides to it. John seven thirty seven. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So he's promising the blessing that there's, there's eternity with him. John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. All of those positive, blessed truths but then Matthew ten thirty eight, Whosoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's the same preacher. The Lord Jesus said that. Whosoever finds his life will lose it. And whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so these are, these are, this is the message of the gospel. This is what they're doing. They're being very realistic. and They're teaching the congregation to persevere, to be ready for what may come ahead. Now, there are three promises with, with all of the reality of the persecution that, that is possible, that is in many places very certain, um, and that we have to be prepared. There's always these three promises, as hard as the days ahead may be. Jesus has promised His presence. Just always remember the last words of Matthew. He says to go, and then He says, and lo, I am with you always. He said it in another way in, in, in dealing with people in church relationships. And he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So we, we say the truth of the tribulation and of the, of the persecutions. But Jesus says, I'm with you. It's like the burning furnace all over again. Meshach, Shadrach are there, but Jesus is in the midst with them. And so they're not even singed by the fire. The second promise is that there are no trials in this world, no temptations that will be too great that we will not be able to bear under its weight. Be it, be it a temptation to sin or even a trial like persecution. So 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Um, Paul testified. This, this, is, this is what he felt in his flesh in all of his afflictions. He was able to say this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That's how he describes his suffering. It was like he was carrying the dying body of Christ. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. 
So even as he suffers, he feels Christ's presence. And then the third promise, not only Christ promises his presence, not only God's word promises that he will help you in times of trials and temptation, the third thing is that we, <clears throat> we need to take advantage of the reality of suffering and see that there's a, there's a reason for it. And there's a use of it. If you are in suffering, there's these three things. Suffering here specifically in terms of persecution, in terms of tribulation because of sharing the gospel. The first thing is that that suffering will make you know that you need God. You will not win this world for Christ on your own strength, with your own eloquence. Persecution will help you know you need the Lord. Secondly, suffering causes you, therefore, to cling closer to the Lord. You're not just going to know you need Him. You're going to go to the one you need. And Packer said this, God takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence to trust in Him, to wait upon the Lord. In light of that, we do not despair. We are not without hope because God is the one on whom we have set our hope. And so suffering helps you know your need, helps you cling to the Lord. And then thirdly, um, suffering so connected to this will cause you to pray more, to read God's word more. Because this is how you cling to the Lord. It, it is not just a mystical thing. It is going to the word and saying, Lord, speak to me through thy word. I need your presence. And then praying, you're cry, crying your heart out to him. Prayer and the word. And suffering will drive us to that. And so, how, how do they strengthen the saints? By perseverance, by teaching faithfulness. Thirdly, leadership. By establishing leadership. By explaining the need of leadership. But not only that, but ordaining the very elders that they need. This, this is what the text says next. So verse 22, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church. So there's the element of leadership. And, and here you, you see how this would strengthen those congregations. Now that Paul arrives there, he sees among the men those who would be more like a shepherd to that flock. And maybe there's a couple men here that could take care of this house church. And then there's another group. He, there's another man there, maybe someone not so ready, but he will be discipled. And then he sees someone else and they get all together and, and he instructs and he teaches them what they need to know, and they are ordained as elders in, in that realm, that, that group of churches. Throughout all those churches, we, we start finding three words. Some people through church history got confused thinking of them in different offices, but as we put together what they do, it's really the same office. The first word is the word used here, um, elders. Um, this word has been translated also presbyters. That's a word of, that goes directly to the Greek. The Greek word is presbyteroi. And what that means, the word elders kind of translates that because that, the presbyteroi means an older man, someone who has more maturity, therefore, and somebody who has more experience. 
It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be someone of a certain age and up, but it clearly indicates that it's a man who has maturity and has experience. And then from Ephesians 4.11, there's the word shepherds, and typically we say the word pastors, and that's another word for this part of leadership. And then the other word is the word overseer, and what we find often in, in the King James Bible is the word bishop. Bishop and overseer is really meaning the same thing. That is a translation of the word um, episkopoi. I, I think it's good to see that word episkopoi. You see there the, the root word for scope. That's where you get telescope and microscope. It's the idea of seeing, of, of watching. The word episkopoi is the idea of, of seeing from a point of advantage. Um, so remember, I, I believe I gave the example before of, of a shepherd who has a very big flock and perhaps there are obstacles where he can't see the flock just at the plane. So he goes up in a structure or up in a tree and he observes the flock to see if they're okay or to see if they're enemies encroaching or wild animals. And the moment the shepherd is up observing, he's an episcopoi. He's, he's this overseer. He's, he's just observing. It's not, it's not a position that speaks of any hierarchy, that speaks of power and position and glory. It's, it's simply someone who's observing because he cares for the flock. And if he sees danger, he'll get down from that obstacle and either he'll send a, a shepherd boy or he himself will go. And that's when he's in a sense like the, the, the pastor where he um, buckles his belt and just runs to protect the sheep in the field. And so they are strengthening the congregations by, by ordaining pastors, ordaining elders to care for the congregation. And, and, and just, just a little summary here. This wasn't all of a sudden in the life of, of Jewish mindset. It, it really had its roots in Old Testament. Um, God himself in the Old Testament is portrayed as the great shepherd of Israel. All of Israel is portrayed as a flock of sheep that God shepherds. And whenever there were kings who didn't care, they, they, were, they were shepherds who were not concerned with the flock. The flock at that point were called a flock of sheep without a shepherd because the king was not wanting to be a pastor, as it were, to Israel. Remember, we hear of the elders of Israel. These would have been the more mature and older men who would lead God's people in spiritual matters, and they would join with the prophets and the priests. You often read of priests and elders, and what are they doing? They are overseeing things that are going on. They are like those pastors up on a tree looking at the flock. So this was from Israel's Old Testament way of living. And then when you go to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is one who presents himself as the good shepherd, who even gives his life for the sheep. Boys and girls, you, you could think of it this way. Jesus is then in heaven overseeing this world, and he sees our danger. He sees that Satan wants to take all of us and take us all to hell. So he comes to this world, and he takes upon himself our sins, and he dies on the cross. He's the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. And all who look to him and believe, Satan has no more grasp on you. And cannot take you to his place because the good shepherd came down from where he was overseeing and he was a shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. 
You see, this is in the New Testament also. And, and now we read here, elders. Elders are being appointed in the churches. Later, Paul will, will codify who these elders should be in, in 1 Timothy and Titus. He will give lists of qualifications of what's to be looked to find a man, what a man should be striving to live like in order to be a qualified elder. And then we see Paul and Barnabas here. Um, what an example of, of the very thing they're teaching. Because here's Paul and Barnabas going back to Lystra where they might die. Going back to Iconium where they might be stoned. But they are good shepherds. And good shepherds are willing to give their life for the sheep. Now, now there, there are two difficulties and two blessings. And before we go to our fourth um, way by which souls are strengthened. We're here talking still about leadership. There, there are two dangers, two difficulties, I'll say, and, and two blessings. One great challenge is this, one of the difficulties. These were all young believers. Um, th- this whole trip of Paul was a matter of around six to seven or eight months. This is not years and years and years of ministry. These are all young believers Basically, everyone is young in the faith. They are all babes in Christ. That's one great challenge. Then the other um, danger, you could say, of these two difficulties, one is a challenge, one is a danger. The Jewish people who are now believers, they would have the temptation in their immature Christianity to revert back to legalism. We know this would be a temptation because it's exactly what happened to many of them. This is precisely the problem that will come next chapter. And, and the Gentiles who are now believers, their temptation would be to revert to the secularism from which they came. I mean, both of them, Jews and Gentiles who are now believers, because they don't have, you can take away half of the Bible, all of the New Testament. They didn't have that yet. Their Bible was the Old Testament. They didn't have the rich instruction yet of all the apostles and Paul. And so they would be very much in danger of believing the false teachings that would come. And we know this because it's exactly what happened. Paul writes to the Galatians and he has to admonish them not to revert to legalism because it's precisely what they did. They were literally adding works to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And and you read Colossians, and he's admonishing them not to give themselves to what he calls human philosophies or rudiments of the world. And what what it seems to be is is with the Greek philosophies and all, their minds were being affected, and some of them were not believing anymore in the divinity of Christ. That's what you find in, in Colossians. He even warns them against worshiping angels, which implies that Some of them were starting to do that or to be tempted to do that. And so those were the dangers. This is why they needed leaders. They needed shepherds. But there are two blessings. Two blessings. One of them is many of the Jews um, who converted to God and many of the Gentiles were were those God-fearing Gentiles. And when you think of those two, the Jews, almost all of them, would have been those who knew their Old Testament well. 
the God-fearing Gentiles were beginning to know the Old Testament well. And, and Paul arrives, and it's not like he has anything else of Scripture to teach them, because all they have is that. That's what Paul has, other than the teaching that he's giving that he heard from Christ. And it's slowly being written down, but still they don't have it as Scripture. Paul arrives, and he doesn't refer them to other writings. He refers them to what they already have. And basically what they need to understand is that all those prophecies of the Messiah were fulfilled in Christ. The Christ he's presenting fulfills the Old Testament. And so this would have been a great blessing. And this would explain perhaps why Paul wouldn't have to stay five years in a city to to disciple a man to then become an elder. Because these were men who knew the Bible, many of them probably. Now, of course, as he went further and further, there would be less Jews and less of the God-fearing Gentiles. And, and the challenges would become harder. And maybe they would need more time. But that was one blessing. And the other blessing, with this blessing, we go straight to our number four. Because I do believe this was one great blessing that they had and made use of. They availed of this and God honored them. So how is it that we strengthen souls? By encouraging faithfulness, exhorting unto faithfulness, exhorting unto perseverance, teaching about leadership, and number four, prayer. And this is what they did. They prayed earnestly. If we go back to Acts chapter 14... Look what we read. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Prayer and fasting. And this is why I say prayer that was earnest. In in, in a summary, um, we could say that when you pray and you fast, in essence what you're doing is that you're praying earnestly. You are so intent in praying that you don't have time to think of food or you're not even hungry for food you're just acknowledging you need the lord so much it's like he's your food and that's all you need and you're just going to focus upon prayer prayer and fasting always speaks of very earnest intense prayer and and beloved i i could not emphasize how prayer is like a key theme throughout all of what we've been reading in Acts. And, and I've been bringing this summary from time to time um, in, 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 in one of our studies with the youth regarding evangelism. We, we, consider, we, we, we considered this. I don't want to make a big list here, but I want to run through a few of them just impress upon your hearts how, how everything we've been hearing in Acts, in God's providence, He's been using prayer for these things to happen. Because as soon as you open the book of Acts, you find them praying. And that is a prayer that results into the 12th apostle that they need to elect. And then we get to the chapter where there is the day of Pentecost. And when thousands of people are now added to the church, we have a little list of what the church does. And one of the things is that they prayed. The very next chapter, Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. And then that's when the man is lame who is um, healed. And then there is the preaching of the word. They end up in prison. 
As soon as they are released, they meet with God's people and they pray. That's one of the longest prayers. That is the prayer that ends, remember, with the ground shaking. And then we find the description of the church where they were living with that unity of heart, where they were sharing with those who didn't have many of the needs and, and how the church was, was just in earnest and in love with one another. And then we find Stephen being martyred, and his martyrdom ends with prayer. And then Saul is converted, and Ananias is to go find him. And, and the Lord Jesus tells Ananias, Behold, he prayeth. The, the sense is, here's Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He's now a Christian. And you'll find him by meeting a man who's praying. He's given an address. He's told where he is. But he says, Behold, he prayeth. When the angel meets Cornelius, the angel says this to Cornelius, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And after everything is said and done, and Cornelius sends those men to find Peter, we find in the text where Peter is, it says, Peter therefore was kept in, excuse me, it says, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So Cornelius had been praying. The angel appears to him. They go find Peter. Peter is praying, and the men come to Peter. And then Peter goes, and you know what happens. All of Cornelius' household is saved. Then we hear Peter is arrested. Remember, James is killed by Herod. Peter is about to be killed by Herod the next day, but an angel shows up. Before that angel shows up, we... We read that, yes, Peter is in prison. And then it says, But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him in Acts 12. So after Peter is delivered, he goes to the, heart of, uh, to the house of John Mark. And that's where they're praying. They're having a prayer meeting for the deliverance of Peter. And he arrives at the door. And so we find prayer everywhere. We've seen already also the first missionary journey began with prayer. They were praying and fasting. Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They are now about to go back. And what do they do? They pray and fast as they meet these believers who need to be strengthened. They tell them that they need to suffer. But they don't, they don't say that just in passing. They say, we're going to be here with you. We're going to strengthen you. We're going to encourage you to continue in the faith. And we're going to teach you that you are to expect tribulations. We've been feeling it already in our own flesh. But we're going to pray with you. And we're going to fast. And we're going to leave you pastors. Isn't this precious, beloved? So, so much love and so much dependence. See, they're realizing they can't do this on their own. They need God to help them. And God is doing great things as we see all of these people becoming believers. And then the last thing, the last of the five, is what we find um, at the beginning and the end. It says, and when they had preached the gospel to that city. And then when we hear as they go on from one city to the next, it says, verse 25, and when they had preached the word in Perga. They went down in Italia. I, I cannot complete this list without saying that the way a soul is strengthened is by the preaching of the Word of God. So perseverance, faithfulness, preaching, prayer, and leadership. Those are the five ingredients. And just a few words about preaching. Preaching is the seed of everything. There would be no conversion. 
Paul would have no mission. Paul would have nothing to say if he didn't have the word to proclaim. There wouldn't be anyone being saved because there would be no message of salvation. A preaching of the word, we need to understand how, how foundational it is. This is what Paul is doing. He's going to these cities because he needs to preach the gospel. He needs to give the word to teach that Christ is the Savior and that they must turn to them. This, this is the main ingredient um, this, this is the faith that they are to continue in. Um, this is what will strengthen them in their tribulation. Um, this is what the leaders are supposed to be doing. They're going to be elders who will preach the gospel to them. This is why we are strengthened by leadership, because our leadership gives us the gospel. And when we come to this point, we bring all of these together, and we find that they're... Um, they're point of confluence, their, their point that converges all is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when they are giving them the word, in a summary you could say they are giving them Christ, who is the word incarnate. Isn't this the word, way, beloved, to be strengthened in your soul, to continue in the faith, the faith in Jesus to know there will be tribulations because my master Jesus was persecuted. To have my pastor, and he is to be an example of Christ. And to pray. Well, Jesus taught us to pray, and he often prayed. And then to hear the word preached. And it's the message of Christ. All of these converge in the person of Christ. This is what Paul was doing, was bringing Jesus to all the people. And this is what strengthened the people, knowing Christ, trusting Christ, and seeing Christ in, in, in their elders, and in Paul, and in Barnabas. And so just in closing, we, we need to realize this, this is what strengthens us as a body of believers. Um, it's, it's still the Word of God. It is still that we would be faithful. It is still that we would persevere and know that persecution may come. It is still that we need leadership, godly leadership. And it is still that we need to pray. And it is still that we need the Word. When you think of all those things, do you think that's, that's how you're living? And each and every one of those, do you, do you avail of prayer to the degree that that is good and acceptable? Do you pray, not just on your own, but with God's people? Do you attend to the hearing of the word as often as you can? Are you trusting the Lord to be faithful? Are you ready for persecution? Do you, do you at least put it into your mind? Okay, tribulation may come. Am I ready? Lord, help me to be ready. None of us can promise that it will come to anyone individually, but all of us need to be ready for it to come and that we would persevere and not, and not um, give to unbelief like we hear there in Hebrews because of difficulties. And as a summary to all of this, is it Christ whom you desire?
Is it Christ who you want to be like? Is it Christ whom you want to learn from? Is it Christ whom you want to please? Because if so, your soul will be strengthened. You will continue in the faith. You will be ready for persecution. You will pray. Because if you want Christ, then you speak to Him. And you speak to the Father through Him. And He will be glorified in you. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Lord, as we see um, Paul and Barnabas strengthening, confirming the souls of the disciples. We pray, Lord, that our souls would be confirmed through Thy Word, through the Lord Jesus as He is proclaimed through Thy Word. Lord, help each and every one of us to continue in the faith. Help us, Lord, to be ready for tribulation. Help us to pray. Help us, Lord, to honor our elders, to pray for them. There may be young men here or older men who who may be blessed and given gifts to the ministry to be either pastors or elders, um, full-time ministers, or serving as shepherds, godly elders in our church. Lord, we pray, raise these leaders among us. Be with these young men as they grow and that they would seek godliness and Christ-likeness in their lives. And Lord, we pray that all of us would, would have this heart of prayer, that we would avail of our prayer meetings, of our prayer services, and that we would pray and that we would find even other venues for prayer. Lord, we see how prayer was so central and how so much happened um, and blessed because and through um, prayer. Help us, Lord, to avail ourselves of this great gift to the church. And then also the preaching of thy word. Help us, Lord, to give attention to the preached word, not only on Sundays, but even throughout the week. Work, Lord, in our hearts as we receive the word. Help us, Lord, to to meditate upon what we have heard, maybe even today or through this week, that we may think of this morning's sermon or this sermon and and be, be challenged by it and seek, Lord, to follow what Thou hast taught us in Thy Word. We pray, Lord, that Thou would strengthen this body of believers, strengthen Thy church, Lord, and be glorified in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.